You're listening to Weekly Devotions with Pastor James, a podcast devoted to helping you with your walk with Jesus. We do this by looking at the scriptures through devotions and messages every week. For more information, you can find us at gardeningthewell.com and would love for you to connect with us over there. Uh, You can visit our blog, you can visit our bookstore, and you can connect with us and shoot us some feedback. Send us questions, maybe something you'd like to hear an episode on. And with that said, uh, let's jump into it today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, you could use uh, the Pew Bible right in front of you, the blue one. Uh, We're going to be in a couple of parts in Revelation chapter 20 this morning. So as you're turning there, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, uh, once again, we thank you for this day. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. I need you. Lord, we're going to take a look at something that is not often talked about. And maybe for some this morning, it is the first time that they have ever heard a sermon or a study on it. But Lord, it is part of what happens next, and that is the series that we're in. What's next? And so Lord, I ask for Your words. I ask for Your grace ah, this morning. That You would allow me to teach on this properly and rightly that, Lord, that You would give us not just ears to hear, but that You would soften our hearts and that You would motivate us to the proper response that is in line with Your will. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for Your blessings this morning, that You'd use me, that You would work in our lives. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Hey, that was pretty good, pretty good. Uh, glad to have you all here with us this morning. Uh, hopefully you made it to the Kabasi Festival this past two days in uh, Plymouth. Uh, if you made it to the Kabasi Fest yesterday, you probably didn't find any Kabasi because it seemed like they all ran out of Kabasi. How you run out of Kabasi at a Kabasi Festival, I don't know. But uh, it is the way it is. But uh, I hope you're all doing well. I mentioned this last week, and so I wanted to tell you this right up front. I don't have a fancy graphic for it yet, so you have to excuse me on that. We are currently in this series called What's Next? And so we're looking at what happens next in terms of the end times. Well, we have this morning, and then we have two messages left. You ready? They are the Millennial Kingdom and Heaven. Okay, Uh, those are the last two things we'll look at in this series, and the series ends the end of this month, which means we start something new in September. I am so excited for this, it's probably bad news for you. Uh, This series I have been praying about uh, going back and forth on for two years, at least two years, all right? So you want to know what we're going to start in September? Oh, that was, that was kind of, uh, remember, your interaction makes the sermon go longer or shorter. So do you want to know what, what, what we're going to do next? Yes. All right, Bob wants a short sermon. We're going to start looking at the book of Exodus in uh, September. Uh, one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, where we're going to start looking at the book of Exodus, and uh, I, you're going to love it. Uh, you're going to love it. We're going to have a great time doing that. But with that said, we got to get through this morning's message, and so I need you to do me a favor. All right. Uh, Some of you, it's going to be different for all of us, but I need you to do me a favor. I want you to think back to when you were 18 years old. Okay. All right. Can you do it? I want you to think, just just do it. All right. Just think back to when you were 18 years old. All right. Now, if you could take everything that you know now and had all that information when you were 18, 
Would you have done things differently over the course of your life? Right? All of us would say yes, right? Because there's at least two things we could all come up with and go, if I knew that when I was 18, I would have, you know, kept going. I'll give you a couple examples. If I knew to invest in Apple when I was 18 years of age, I would have done it, all right? If I knew I should have continued to exercise and lift weights when I stopped playing football, I would have done it, all right? Uh, I would have definitely done that, all right? Uh, there are a couple cars that I owned in my life that I would not have bought if I had the information up front, all right? I would have went to a different college than the college I did go to. Uh, well, one, I went to three different colleges, so two out of the three I would have been different, right? I also would not have put a semester of college on my credit card because my financial aid kind of disappeared on me somewhere. Nobody knew where it went, so we had to use Visa for that, so I would not have done that. I would have married Amy sooner. Uh, I can't, I don't know if she would say the same thing, um, but... You've all done that at times in your life, right? Where you've looked back over your life and go, if I had this information five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I would have done things a little bit different. Why do we do that? Because we've all done it. We do it because we like to imagine or we wonder what life would be like if we had known the future earlier on. Because if we had known what the next 20 years of our life would entail, we would have been doing things differently when we were 18 years of age. Because we like to know what the future holds so that we can make decisions now based on what the future will be so that it will be a blessing and a benefit to us down the road. We've all done that over time. I do it all the time. Almost on a weekly basis, I go, if I had started investing for my retirement in my 20s, you know, things would have been a lot better than they are for now. Well, this morning, we come to a section of Scripture in our What Next series that is not easy to preach on, and I'll tell you this up front, it's not easy to hear either. Much of this series has been difficult in different ways for some of you, if not all of you. This morning is no different, but it is here in the text that we have to understand why God is telling us what he is telling us. He is telling us what the future holds so that we can live in light of it now. So that when the future is the present, we don't look back and go, oh, I wish I knew this way back when, because if I had known it then, I would have done things differently. And so what we see this morning is very difficult. But God goes, I want you to know this up front so that you can live in light of it so when the future is the present, it is a blessing to you and a benefit to you and not the other end of the stick. But here's the thing. Knowledge only becomes wisdom when it is applied to life. Knowing about this is one thing. Living in light of it is something else, and it is that that God wants us to do. He doesn't want you to just know what I'm going to take the next couple minutes to tell you about. He wants you to apply it to your life. And so we're going to get into it. We have two points this morning, judgment to life and judgment to contempt. And I'll throw this up on the screen. 
You may not be able to read that, but that's why I tell you to bring your Bibles. And so I'm going to read it to you. This is uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. What we read there is this. John says this, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image or had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now I read that and I know some of you, and I'm going to step out on a limb, and some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, I read this chapter this past week because I thought this is what you're going to preach on, and I really want to know what verses 1 through 3 mean and what verses 7 to 10 mean. Are we going to look at those this morning? No, no, we're not. Those verses we'll talk about next week, all right? Let me set this up for you because you need to understand the time frame in this. Last week, we talked about the second coming of Jesus. We talked about the return of Jesus, and we talked about the battle of Armageddon and what is going to come back that day. And what I told you last week is that Jesus is going to come back because He is faithful. He made a promise that I'm going to come back, and so if He doesn't come back, He breaks His promise and He lied to us. And so Jesus is going to come back because He is faithful. We also saw last week that Jesus is going to come back to be judge, that he, and He's going to pass judgment, which is the battle of Armageddon that we talked about last week. But I also told you last week that Jesus is going to come back to set up His kingdom. And that kingdom we'll talk about next week. But He is going to come back. So I want you to get this timeline of where we're at in the Scriptures this morning. Because we're going to be in a couple different places. Jesus has just come back. The battle of Armageddon has just happened. And then verses 4 through 6 take place. You understand that? Right? This is really important. Jesus comes back, the battle of Armageddon takes place, and then verses 4 to 6 happen. Like, I'm not saying the same day, it may be the next day, okay? But understand that, it's the same time. Jesus comes back, battle of Armageddon, and then verses 4, 5, and 6 take place. You need to understand that. And here's why. Because in a couple minutes, we're going to get to verse 11 through verse 15. Those verses are a thousand years after verses 4, 5, and 6. Okay? You got, you got that timeline, right? And that thousand year gap is what we'll talk about next week. But between point 1 and point 2 this morning, between the judgment of life and the judgment to contempt, there's a thousand year period of time. That's going to be verses 1, 2, and 3, and then verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, which we'll look at next week. And so that's the timeline that we're in this morning so that you know. Because that thousand-year period is called the Millennial Kingdom, or the Messianic Kingdom, which we'll talk about last, uh, next week. Excuse me, And you'll like that. It, it is really great stuff. But before that kingdom, there is a judgment that takes place and a judgment that happens after it. And so we come to verses 4 through 6. They said, Jesus has just come back. The battle of Armageddon has taken place. And John goes in verse 4, I saw, thron I saw thrones. He goes, 
I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And you go, well, who are those people? Well, I don't know. We're not told. We're not told how many thrones there are. We're not told who is seated on the thrones. And if you want to get into the weeds with this, which I've been trying not to do in this series, some people will argue that it's the 12 apostles. Some people will argue that it is uh, people who died during the tribulation period that put their faith in Jesus. Some people argue that it's people from the church age, meaning you and I, someone who put their faith in Jesus after His resurrection and ascension, but before the rapture of the church, that they're sitting on the thrones. And here's my point. I don't know who they are. If God wanted us to know who are sitting on these thrones, Jesus would have told us. But what I do know is that Jesus is in complete control and He has the right to give somebody the authority to judge. It may be you. You may sit on one of these thrones. I don't know, but that's what John sees. But then John continues and he goes, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Now pause there. You mean beheaded. All these people had their heads cut off? Not necessarily. The Greek word there for beheaded, it is just a general word for execution. So they could have been shot, they could be stabbed, they could be thrown off a cliff, they could be run over with a car. It's just a general word that speaks to that this person was put to death, executed, not necessarily that their head was chopped off. John goes, I saw the souls of these people who were put to death. Well, who are these people who are put to death? Well, John tells us, go back to the Scriptures. He goes, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Why? Because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. So what does that tell us? They're Christians. They love Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus. But John gives us more. He goes, they had not worshipped the beast or his image or had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. So what does John tell us there? That these people that are dead, that have been executed, they've been executed because of their faith in Jesus, but at the same time, they didn't worship the beast. Who's the beast? Come on, we talked about it. Who's the beast? Starts with an A. Antichrist. They didn't worship the Antichrist. And so what that tells us is that these are men and women who during the tribulation period came to know Jesus as Lord God, Savior, and King, who rejected the Antichrist, did not worship Him, did not take His mark, and they were put to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's who John sees. They're martyred Christians from the tribulation period. John goes, I saw their souls. And then he tells us this. He goes on to say they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That reigning and for the thousand years, we'll talk more about that next week. But he goes, they came to life. That word life is important. When you and I use the word life, there's one word that speaks to life. So if I go, how's life going? You go, physically I'm doing well, but, you, you, but at the same time you go, physically I'm doing well, mentally I'm not doing well, right? Guess what? In the Bible, in the New Testament, when you and I read the word life, in the Greek there's one of three words that are used. One of the Greek words for life is bios, right? It is the word that we get our English word biology from. 
So it's speaking to the outer life. It's speaking to all the things that would fall under like a, a biological sphere. Everything that is external going on. And so Scripture will use that word for life, bios. But there's a second word that Scripture uses. It's the word suke. We get our English word psychology from it. And it, is, it talks about the inner life of the person. For example, peace of mind. Worry, stress, anxiety. All that inner life that goes on within you. The Bible talks about that. But then there's a third word that Scripture uses for life. And it's the word zoe. And the word zoe, it speaks to a spiritual life. It speaks to an eternal life. And here's the thing about eternal life. When the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not necessarily referring mainly to the length of time. Because when you think of eternal life, you think forever. You're thinking of a time period. The main oomph behind that word in the New Testament is not necessarily the, the length of time, but the quality of life. And so when Scripture talks about an eternal life in the Bible, it's not talking about a life that doesn't end. It's talking about the life that you can have in Christ and because of Christ. It talks about the quality of life that a person can have the moment they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and they have that forever because of Jesus, because of who He is and what He has done, is doing and will do. And so when John says he saw these souls come to life, he uses the Greek word zoe. And what he's saying is this. He goes, I saw them come to a spiritual life. What he's referring to is this. They have a bodily resurrection. They get their glorified bodies. They come to life spiritually speaking in Christ. That's what he's talking about. It says they came to a bodily resurrection. They came to a spiritual life. Their souls met up with their new bodies, if you want to put it that way. But then John goes, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And there's our gap, which we'll jump over this morning. But John goes, this is the first resurrection. And so Jesus comes back. The battle of Armageddon takes place. And those who believed in Jesus during the tribulation period and were put to death, they are raised from the dead. They will have their new bodies. And so here's what I want you to get right now. At this point, along the timeline, in verses 4, 5, and 6 of Revelation chapter 20, every person who has ever lived in the history of mankind, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, is now alive and on the earth. You got that? Because remember, who came back with Jesus when He returned last week? Church. So everybody who has put their faith in and trust in Christ at this point along the timeline is alive, they all have their resurrected, glorified bodies, and they're on the earth. David, Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, your grandparents who lived 75 years ago and loved Jesus, you, if you love Jesus and trust in Jesus, you're alive with a new body on the earth at this moment in this time frame. You got that? Good. Because I know what some of you are saying. Pastor, you said this was all about the judgment and you're talking about a resurrection. What's the deal? Well, what the deal is, is this. The judgment is found in another place. But we need to talk about it. 
It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ, and maybe some of you have heard it. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He goes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I always tell you that context is important. The context of this chapter, Paul is talking about believers in heaven and things associated with that. So the context is he's talking about believers. All right? I didn't have time to set that all up for you this morning. You'd be here really long. And so Paul goes, for, for we must all. That word all is not speaking to every person who's ever lived. It's speaking to people who put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Paul goes, each one of us will stand before Jesus and be judged. The reason it's called bima, because the Greek word for judgment is bima. The word bima speaks to a platform that a judge would sit on or or, uh, people overlooking the games to uh, judge the games would sit on. That's why it's called bima. This judgment, if you're a Christian, you will take part in it. You will stand before God and be judged. And I say that and you go, well, I thought, Pastor, that because I'm in Christ and I trust Jesus, that I won't have to be judged for my sins. And you're right. You're perfectly right. For the Christian, you will not stand before God to have your sins judged to determine if you're going into heaven or not. Your salvation has nothing to do with this judgment. Your salvation is signed, sealed, delivered, and secured in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. This judgment has nothing to do with salvation. I, I, I can repeat that all day long, but you need to understand this. If you're a Christian, the judgment that you will take part in where you stand before Christ and He will judge you, is not to judge your sins. Not to punish your sins. Christ took your punishment as a Christian on the cross. And He's not going to judge you for your sins. So you go, what's the deal then? Why do I have to be judged? Well, this judgment, as Paul tells us, is so that each one may receive what is due him. Do you ever have a job review? You weren't having a job review to get the job, right? You already had the job. But you're getting reviewed to see if you're going to get a bonus or a raise or maybe you did so bad they want to like dock you pay, right? Like something along those lines. That's what I want you to think of with this judgment. Think of a job review. And it isn't an analogy and it does break down in places. I got that, but I'm just trying to get you to picture this. This is a job review for you and I. It has nothing to do to get us into heaven that's secure in Christ. But it is a job review. And what I mean by that is this. If you're in Christ, the believer will stand before God and God will look at you, he'll look at me, and he'll go, I gave you these gifts. What did you do with them? I gave you these abilities. What did you do with them to honor me? I gave you this time. What did you do to use it to glorify me? I put these people in your life. How did you interact with them for my kingdom and for my glory? And then God will reward you based on how good of a job you did. 
You see, when Paul goes there at the end, he goes, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, he's not talking about good and evil. That word bad, it's not talking about evil. It's worthless. It has no value. That's what the word means. And God's going to look at us and go, okay, the things you did, did they have value or, did, or no value? Did you use what I gave you for my kingdom and in my way? I'll give you an example. If God has given you the gift of service, but you don't serve people for God's glory, God's going to call you out on that one day. He'll judge you accordingly to that. If God has given you the gift of encouragement, but you don't encourage anybody, God is going to call you out on that. It would be like, I have the gift of teaching. You might argue with me. That's fine. I would argue with that at times too. But I have the gift of teaching. What if I never showed up to church? What if you come next week and I'm not here and I'm not on vacation? The doors are locked. The air conditioning is off. The gates are closed. Tom has no idea. I'm just sleeping. I go, they don't need me. I'm going to take the day off. I'm not going to teach. Why should I teach? You know what happens? When I die and I face Jesus, He's going to go, hey, why didn't you teach? Why didn't you use the gifts that I gave you for my kingdom? Because you didn't use your gifts, because you didn't do what I asked you to do, because you chose to do the things in your life that brought no value to God, impacted nobody's life for Christ, God goes, you lose rewards. Now at the same time, God didn't go, look, look at this event. You used your gifts. You encouraged, you served, you gave, you taught. You were a blessing. You told them about me. God's going to go, that's amazing. You did what I wanted you to do. And because of that, I'm going to reward you. And so God's going to look at our actions. He's going to look at our lives. And He's going to judge your work with what He has given you. And He's going to reward you according to what you have done. With what God has given you for His kingdom. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 to 15. He uses a little bit of an analogy. Because if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, that's speaking to this judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed at fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fires. Notice that phrase, he will be saved. If you stand before Jesus and Jesus goes, you did absolutely nothing but what I gave you to. You lose all the rewards that you could have possibly had. If you're still in Christ, you still go to heaven. You just don't get any rewards. Because you didn't do anything to get the rewards. You ignored everything that God has called you to do, asked you to do, gifted you to do. This judgment is not about salvation. You're going to be in heaven if you're in Christ. You just might lose out on some rewards. You see, this judgment will take place for the believer in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, this judgment will happen 
you will stand before Christ and He will judge your works. The question then is, when does this judgment happen? Well, some people say that this judgment happens right after the rapture of the church. Some say it happens during verses 4, 5, and 6 that we read. Other people say that it happens in the verses we're going to read in a moment, and that this judgment happens after the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, which it can't because reigning with Christ is part of your reward. So this judgment has to happen before the millennial kingdom. The important thing you need to understand is this. Sometime after you and I die, and before the thousand-year reign of Jesus, you will be judged by God to see if you're rewarded or not. It's not getting into heaven that's done, but it's to see if you're going to be rewarded. So let me ask you, what are you doing with what God has given you? Do you think what you've done with what God has given you, what God has asked you to do, would stand the test of a fire? Or will it burn up? Or let me ask you this, have you even done anything for God to judge? Or have you completely done nothing? Tough questions. But it's not the only judgment. Judgment to contempt. Verses 11 to 15. I'll be upfront with you on this. Try to be upfront with you all the time. What I'm about to read, and it's not on the screen, is one of the most awe-inspiring scenes in the Bible, but it is also one of the most difficult ones. This is a very difficult passage to teach on. It is a very difficult passage to hear on. After the thousand-year reign of Jesus, once again, we'll talk about that next week, John says this, I'm going to read to you verses 11 through 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there is no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death and, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> As I said, this is after the thousand-year reign of Jesus at least a thousand years after the judgment that we just talked about. And John goes, this time I see one throne. Not many. <clears throat> I see one white throne. And one person sits on it. So who do you think that is? It's God. It's Jesus. It's Jesus sitting on the throne. And then John goes, earth and sky fled from His presence. I don't even know how to describe that to you. How does the earth and the sky flee from the presence of God? It's just God. It just rolls up. Now this could be symbolism. It may not be symbolism. John's point and what he's saying there is this. 
There is no place to hide. Nobody can hide from this judgment because there is no place to hide. There's no earth. There's no sky. There's nothing for you to hide underneath or behind. And he goes, I saw the dead, great and small. What do you mean by great and small? Meaning no difference. Whether you're a billionaire, whether you lived in a cardboard box, whether you helped people, whether you ignored people, whether you're famous, not famous, whether you had a great title, no title, it doesn't matter. Great or small, it doesn't matter who you are. You're there. You're there. He goes standing before the throne. It's a courtroom setting. The person... The accused is standing before the judge. And John goes, the dead. Well, who are the dead? He doesn't say the righteous dead. He just says the dead. These are who John were talking about back in verse 5. The dead here in this verse refers to every single person who lived their life and rejected Jesus as Lord, God, Savior, and King. You see, everybody that knew Jesus and loved Jesus and trusted Jesus, they've been alive on the earth for at least a thousand years, ruling and reigning and enjoying God's presence. But the unrighteous dead who rejected Jesus, they wait until after a thousand years and then God calls them up. This judgment is only for those who do not turn to Jesus by faith. This is the judgment for the person who rejects Christ. If you look in verse 13, you see those who died in the sea are brought up and those who are in the grave are brought up. It's John's way of saying this. No matter how they died, no matter where they died, no matter where their bodies are at, whether they have been burned up in an explosion or whether their grave, their bones are in a grave in a cemetery. Wherever they're at, however they died, they're going to be raised up to stand before God at this judgment. <clears throat> now here's what I want you to understand. Because not a lot of people grab this. The people that are raised for this judgment, they get a new body as well. Jesus says it this way. In John chapter 8, verses 28-29, Jesus says this. He goes, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. So that is the believers in Christ. They're going to rise to life that we just saw. Heaven and rewards and things along those lines. But Jesus continues... And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And Daniel the prophet talks about this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. The dead that have rejected Christ, they're going to rise to content, contentment. The people who reject Jesus, they're getting a new body as well. See, believers think, oh, we're getting a new body. This is going to be fantastic. And you know what? You're right. I can't wait for my body, my new body, and I'm only 42, right? I can't wait for the new body. But you know what? Those who reject Jesus and are going to hell, they get a brand new body too. You go, Pastor, why is that? Well, the same reason you're going to get a new body in Christ. 
You and I need a new body that's suited for heaven. Those who reject Jesus, they need a body that's suited for hell so that they can endure the punishment and the torment of hell for all eternity. And so they have a resurrection, if you would, as well. Please understand this. This is not easy to preach on. It's not easy to hear. But God gives us this truth now so that we can make things proper and right now so that we don't have to worry about it. John goes, all the dead, great and small, will stand before the throne. He goes, books will be opened and they will be judged according to what they have done. We see books that are open. Well, what are they? Depending on the scholar, it's two or three books. We know it's more than one because it's plural. It's books. Two or three books. Well, what are the books? Well, one book is this. It's the record of the person's life. You know that God keeps a record of your life? Even if you're a believer, He does because He's going to call you out on what you did. So God has kept a record. Get this. All your thoughts... Yes, I said thoughts. He's kept a record of all your thoughts, all your words, all your actions. Kind of freaky, isn't it? How great is God? He can remember that. and Some of you can't even remember what you said yesterday. And so one of the books that is opened at this judgment is the record of the person's life where God can go, hey, you remember that day in August? Eight o'clock in the morning? You did this? And call you out on it. Call you out on it. So that's one of the books. The second book is mentioned here. Well, let me back up for, for a second. God is going to open up that book and He is going to use your words against you if you don't know Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus says, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So the person who goes, I don't need Jesus, I don't want Jesus, I don't think Jesus is alive, guess what's going to be played before them when they stand before God? God's going to go, here's your words. And He's going to use your words against you to condemn you if you're not in Christ. That's the first book. The other book, and some say it's the same book of life, but some say... John mentions the book of life. And some say this book is simply this. It is the book that has the name of every single person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. That's it. Some say it's that book. Others, myself included, believe that it's the Lamb's book of life. We mentioned that last week. What the Lamb's book of life is, is this. Who is the Lamb? If you don't know this one, we're going to start a brand new sermon right now. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. It's Jesus' book of life. And what the Lamb's book of life is simply this. person comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and Jesus writes their name in His book. You're mine. You belong to me. This book only has the names of those who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so what God's going to do on this day of judgment, the person is going to stand before God and God is going to bring before them all the sin that they have ever committed for thought, word, action, deed. 
He's going to use their words against him. They're going to go, and then he's going to open up the Lamb's book of life and go, your name's not in this book. You rejected Jesus. You rejected everything about him. You heard the gospel. You heard the truth of my word. You heard about Jesus. You said you didn't need him. You rejected him. So what does God do then? Well, Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. God passes judgment. He goes, you rejected Jesus. You rejected him. And because of that, your punishment is to go into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is hell. And I don't have time to tell you about hell. It is eternal. It is real. It is not a party. Satan is not in charge of hell. Jesus is in charge of hell. Satan is going to be a prisoner there. He's not going to be the warden. He is going to be suffering just like everybody else who is in hell. It is eternal. It is a real place. It does not end. Scripture tells us where the gnashing of teeth and the worm never sleeps. It is a place that you're not even going to be able to see your hand in front of your face and it's going to be eternal torment and punishment because of the sin and the rebellion that we have committed against God. You go, that's not nice of God. It's very loving that He sacrificed His Son for you so that you don't have to go there. It says by believing in Him. I think that's love. Justice. This is judgment to contempt. That everybody who does not believe in Jesus will be thrown in the lake of fire. They'll be thrown into hell. It's not easy to preach on. Not easy to hear, but it's true. This is the second judgment, a judgment that happens with those who reject Jesus. Have you rejected him? I saw something on Facebook this past week. I don't think it's accurate, but I know the, the, the principle behind it is true. What I saw on Facebook was this. Somebody shared something and it said this. That if you took 50 people who say they believe in Jesus, only one of them are actually saved and going to heaven. So if you took 50 people who said they believe in Jesus, according to this study, only one out of those 50 people are actually going to heaven. I think that's a bit off. But the idea and the principle behind it is true. What I mean by that is this. Not everyone who says they believe in Jesus actually believe in Jesus. Not everyone who goes to church believes in Jesus and is going to heaven. Not everyone who reads their Bible believes in Jesus and is going to heaven. Not everyone who prays actually believes in Jesus. They acknowledge Jesus. They believe that Jesus existed. But they have never come before God. They've never uttered anything along these lines. Lord, Jesus, you're real. I know you came, you lived a sinless life, died on the cross for my sins and rose three days later. You've never said that to God. You've never come to God and go, God, I am a sinner. I have rebelled against you. I have rejected you. And I need your forgiveness. There's people that have sat in pews of churches for 80, 90 years and have never uttered those words. They've never looked at Jesus and go, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. They've never yielded their heart and their will over to Christ. Never. 
but they think they're going to heaven because the pew has molded around their bottoms or because they have the family Bible. That doesn't get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is coming to Jesus, acknowledging Him as Lord God, Savior and King, confessing that you are a sinner, that you are in need of forgiveness, and that you wholeheartedly believe in Jesus. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a pastor. I'm not going to heaven because I've taught through 46 out of 66 books in the Bible. I'm not going to heaven because I've talked people out of killing themselves. I'm not going to heaven because I've sat there and watched people die and I give them a Bible verse. I'm not going to heaven because of any of those things. I'm going to heaven because I am a sinner and I've asked Jesus to forgive me. And He's God. He's Lord. Only way I'm getting into heaven is because of Jesus. That's it. Because if you notice when John says about this judgment that God judges them according to their works, why does God judge these people by their works? It's really very simple. Because they rejected the work of Christ. God goes, you rejected the work of Jesus Christ and so now I have to judge you on your works and in your righteousness. Your works are not good enough to get you into heaven. I know we live in a culture where everybody gets a trophy for doing absolutely nothing. Your works and your righteousness are filthy rags before God, just like mine, and they're not good enough to get you into heaven. And God goes, because you rejected the person and the work of Jesus, I'm going to judge you based on your works. And guess what? Your works don't pass the test. Therefore, you fail. And I have to judge you. I asked you at the start of this message, what would you do differently when you were 18 years of age if you had the information you have now? You would have lived differently knowing what the future holds. As of right now, you know what the future holds. There will be two judgments. One for the believer, one for the unbeliever. A judgment for those who reject Jesus that leads right straight into the fires of hell. You don't need to go there. God has made a way for you to escape hell and punishment and judgment. And it is turning to Jesus by faith, confessing that He is Lord, living in light of the fact that He is Lord, and believing with all that you have that Jesus is Lord God, Savior, and King who died in your place and rose again. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, it's time. But then let me ask you this. For those of you in Christ, you now know a judgment is awaiting you as well. How are you living and using what God has given you so that you don't lose rewards? Knowledge only becomes wisdom when it's, we apply it to life. Knowing this information only impacts your life, your eternal life, when you act in light of it. So let me ask you this morning. In light of the future, what do you need to do today? 
so the future is a blessing and a benefit. I can't answer that for you. Only you can. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Because Father, it's in and out of your grace that you allow us to know what is going to take place so that we can be ready, so that we could be prepared. Father, my prayer is that if anybody that hears these words don't know you as Lord and Savior, that Jesus, that you would work in their lives, that Holy Spirit, that you would convict them of their sin and that you would draw them to a saving knowledge of you, Jesus. But Holy Spirit, I pray that for those that do know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you would help them to see what they ought to be doing in their daily lives, to live for Christ because of who He is and what He's done in them. So that on that day, we would gain rewards and be pleasing and honoring to you as we enter into heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.